Welcome back from your break. And if you can make your way, if you are returning, make your way to your seats. Please open in your scriptures to Exodus chapter 34, Exodus 34. We're only going to be considering the first nine verses of Exodus 34 today uh, because of the richness of uh, this particular section and its importance not only in the book of Exodus and the story God is telling through this book, the true story, but how it ripples through the rest of really the Old Testament and into the new. Let me ask you this question as you turn in your scriptures to Exodus 34. Have you ever really wanted to see someone really badly? Well, when my children were much younger, and I don't remember exactly their ages, Linda and I were remembering when William, our second oldest son, really wanted to see Goofy at Disneyland. Do you remember Goofy? This is before the age of Marvel and DC Comics. And my daughters really wanted to see Cinderella and Belle. And we were told, and it was true, that in Disneyland, there were these areas where Goofy and Belle and Cinderella would be at certain times, and you could meet them. You could have your picture taken with them. They would even somehow, I think, give you their autograph, though I don't remember how Goofy exactly with those paws signed. But I do remember this. We met them. And my kids, when they got home, right, put those pictures with them being hugged by those characters and on their walls. Goofy was on William's wall. I think he only took it down a year ago. Just kidding, Will, and I know you're not watching. But of course, that doesn't just describe children. When we moved here in the early 2000s, we experienced something I never experienced growing up. You had a football team that could win Super Bowls. And we went to our first Super Bowl parade on a freezing morning in January. I think it was 2002 or 2004 to see Tom Brady, the backup quarterback who led the Patriots to their first... And I remember being on Tremont Street there. It was like 20 below zero. There was a wind chill. The sun was out. But we really wanted to see Tom Brady. But the problem was there were 10 rows of adult men and women in front of us. So I did, which was not, not a New England thing. I pushed my boys to the front of the row. And although there were angry looks at first, when they saw the children, they settled down and let them move to the front. So that when Tom went by, and if you remember that parade, Tom was young, he had like on these beads because they had won in New Orleans. My boys and all of these adults really got to see 
a Super Bowl. See, I, there's something in each of us, if we're honest, that really wants to see certain people at certain times. And so it's not surprising then, as we come to our passage this morning, that Moses really wants to see God. He's prayed that last week. Show me your glory, please, Lord. And he sees him in the passage we read. Exodus 34, this is God's word, beginning with verse one. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. Let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we come to a passage in Scripture that may be familiar to some of us and may be new to others of us. But what is stunningly true is nowhere else in our Bible do we see you proclaim your name with such detail than here. So you have us right where you want us in this story. And so I pray this morning that you would prepare our hearts to receive your glory revealed here And seeing it revealed here, we would behold your goodness in Christ today. 
And our response would be that like Moses. As repentant sinners, we would in our hearts worship you and find our delight in loving you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I look at my notes, which will be attached in the email that goes out on Monday, I think there's a simpler way to capture the flow of the text. So the first point this morning, and I'll hold Jim on my main point until the end, is a new set of instructions, which we read in verses 1 to 4, but simply said, could be summed up with one word, preparation. Preparation. And then as we move to the middle of the paragraph, we see God proclaiming his name and revealing his character. Verses 5 through 7, it's really revelation, isn't it? And then the passage concludes with Moses worshiping God, and it calls for our response. Preparation, revelation, our response. Three simple headings which I think capture nicely the flow of this passage. I want to make a bold assertion, and we have prayed boldly for you this morning, that the reason you're here and the reason you're here on the stream is that God wants to use this passage to prepare your hearts for the goodness of God revealed during the Easter season. So Holy Week, although not officially beginning this week, this passage prepares us to receive him. And it does so by revealing his goodness and his mercy through his name, which he proclaims here in this passage. So that when we arrive on Maundy Thursday at the Last Supper and on Good Friday, remembering Jesus' death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, and then Easter Sunday where Jesus' vindication over death is celebrated by Christians. Our hearts are prepared to delight in him, to delight in him. For that is ultimately God's aim in this passage is that we would, having been prepared, behold his goodness and beholding his goodness through his name that is revealed and all that is spoken here, we would not only worship him, but as repentant sinners, we would have our delight in him. See, this is more than a history lesson. And it is history. It happened. It is more than rich theology. It is theology, and it's true. This is God in his goodness chasing you and I. If you are not able with David to say, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Surely, what confident hope he says that. How can he say that? Because David, the repentant sinner's hope, is rooted in the character of God revealed right here. And I think Christians like me doubt that. 
And so God in his kindness brings us to this passage to now reveal the significance of his name, but to prepare our hearts for the salvation of sinners by his son. So let's look at the new set of instructions. And as we do, consider, is my delight in the Lord, if I'm a Christian, rooted in God's goodness and mercy? Or is my delight in the Lord weakening because I doubt his character and have begun to smuggle in my own effort and works? We shouldn't rush by the opening verses, should we? Even though time is fleeting. They do hint at the nature of the moment we are at. Moses is told by the Lord in verse 1 to cut for himself two tablets of stone like the first. And the Lord says, I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablet which you, Moses, broke. Be ready by the morning. Come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. You may remember from previous chapters that following the catastrophic desertion by Israel of the Lord in creating a golden bull, literally it means bull, a cast metal bull while Moses was delayed on the top of Mount Sinai and Aaron led them in sacrifices and worship of this golden bull. When Moses returned, so grieved was he and so angry was the Lord at their sin that he broke the two tablets. He threw them down and signifying that the covenant they had just made, the solemn agreement, was broken and they had broken it. And then last week, Moses intercedes for them. You remember? Pleading with the Lord that that not only he forgive them, but that his presence continue with them. The Lord was, was in that small tent that he instructed Moses to build outside the camp, not the tabernacle, but out. this conversation was occurring where back and forth they go, where I don't think Moses is bargaining, but he's interceding, pleading with the Lord that unless God's presence go with the people, unless he dwell with them, He didn't want the promised land. He didn't want the promise of protection from an angel. He didn't want the prosperity of the land. He wanted for Israel, he wanted God's presence. Do you remember that? To continue. And the Lord in his mercy agrees, Moses having prayed, and so stunned is Moses by the Lord's mercy to to renew the covenant and to continue the journey and to not just be with Moses, but to be with the people that he says, please show me your glory. And we made the point, I hope it was clear, that it was God's mercy, not his judgment, that triggered Moses to pray in 33, 18, show me your glory.
And so it's good news, isn't it, this morning that we read in those opening verses. That the Lord still desires a relationship with undeserving people. That's the good news that we have to offer to our neighbors. That's the good news that he offers to me every day. I desire a relationship with you. An undeserving follower of me that you are. He still desires them to have the joy of living in his presence. He still calls them to walk in his ways and experience his blessing. He says, let's fix the tablets. It's also critical to understanding the coming revelation. The revelation of God himself given to those he saved out of Egypt. Given to those he claimed for his own as his treasured possession, his holy nation. The revelation of God given to those who he called to love him and trust him and live for him as the Lord. In other words, again, Exodus 34 is about God's desire for relationship with you. It will not be at the expense of his holiness, but it will always be, always be grounded in his love and mercy for undeserving people. The whole scene whispers holiness. Come up on the mountain again. Bring those tablets with you again. Let no one come up with you again. Let no cattle graze on the mountain near you. No one can see me and live. And yet, did you notice? There's no mention of his holiness, barely a reference of his holiness in the name he proclaims. And I must admit to you that for years, I have missed this entirely. If I came to church this morning, which is certainly capable of me, I explained this to Dave, and I buttoned my shirt wrongly from the bottom up, you would probably notice it, right? You would say, can I fix that before you go on the stream? Yes, please do. Is there anything on my face either? If I miss the emphasis in Exodus 34, in the name that's revealed, this is the only place in Scripture where the Lord not only reveals his name, but piles up phrase after phrase after phrase. So much so that David refers to it in the Psalms, not just in 23, but dozens of times. But if I miss it, if I miss the mercy, I read the Old Testament wrongly. And if I miss the mercy, I can bring then into the New Testament, if you will, a legalistic bent towards even what it means to walk with God that contradicts his character. See, a name is more than a title in Exodus 34. A name, and here's my second point, reveals his 
character. And so Moses has proclaimed to him, as the Lord is standing there with him, these words that are worthy of memorizing and reflecting on and bringing into our walk with Jesus this week. The Lord descended, verse 5, in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him. Moses is in the cleft of the rock. He can only see the back of God. He's being shielded because no one can see God face to face and live in the Old Testament. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children's children up to the third and fourth generations. Moses wanted to see God. He prayed that the Lord would show him his glory. And God, as he has wanted to do, answers that prayer, but in ways Moses didn't expect. (laughs) I'll show you my glory. Listen to my name. Listen to my name. You can't see me, but listen to my name. It must have sent chills down Moses' spine to hear these names spoken. He'd heard the name the Lord, the capital name of God in the Old Testament. Yahweh literally spoken, spoken to him in chapter 3 of the burning bush. But now God tells his own story. You remember the Hamilton musical? Angelica sings that closing song, Who Will Tell Your Story? Who Will Tell Your Story? God's going to tell his story. He's going to tell his story by telling you his name and doing it in a way that you and I see that it's about the mercy. It's all about the mercy. Do you get the mercy? Because if you miss the mercy, you miss God entirely. Seven fundamental characteristics Seven attributes that describe his very nature. And did you notice? I bet you did. It says nothing about his power. And he is powerful. In Exodus and throughout the Bible, not a single reference to his power. I find most Christians, including me, tend to talk more about his power than his mercy. And I believe in his power. But when the Lord wants to make a point to mercy, he doesn't talk to him about his power. He proclaims his mercy and his steadfast love and his forgiveness of sins. Because God wants you to know that it's all about he relates to others. That's first and foremost in his name. Everything he says is about what God is or does for the benefit of others, especially for repentant sinners who he calls his children. So what is God like? Who is God like? 
First, he's a God that is merciful and gracious. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. That is not what I would be expecting for these people. To be merciful, according to Hebrew scholars, is to be compassionate, and it's brimming with emotion. It's an emotional word. It speaks of tenderness, concern, and sympathy. It's it's what a mother has for a child in public and in private. A deep feeling for the child's weakness. I imagine that's what some of our members are feeling right now as they've brought new little ones and not so little ones into their home. And they maybe hold that infant for the first time or welcome that youngster into their home. And what wells up in them? Compassion. A fierce, tender compassion. Why does it well up in you in there? Because that's God reminding you what he is like towards you who know him. And graciousness. God's inclination of his heart is that He is gracious towards those in need. He never turns a cold shoulder towards us. He does not look down at his nose at my inadequacy and sin. He responds to my need with favor. He goes beyond what is expected. One writer put it this way. When God says he's gracious in Exodus 34, it means he is extravagantly and undeservably generous to the undeserving. And then it says he is God, the Lord, the Lord, God. That's not his name. That is used to describe his might. And so he is particularly powerful when it comes to his mercy and his graciousness. It says he's slow to anger, forbearance. The opposite of short-tempered. He is short of anger. You know, I'm short. I'm forbearing. I'm patient until I hit my hand with the hammer. Until I close the car door on my hand. Until the person cuts me off when I'm driving on 495 and violates my personal space. Until you can't find your What's that, that card that you can scan to pay for your groceries at Cumberland Farms? And don't you know, I got to be places. I'm an important person. I'm forbearing until I realize I'm not. And in that moment, I realize God is not like me. And he's not like you either. For he is forbearing. He draws attention to two more, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, verse six. Oh, this is one of the great word pairs in the whole Bible. 20 plus times it's used in the Psalms alone to describe the Lord and his heart's inclination towards his undeserving people. He abounds in steadfast love. It's a covenantal word. It's a, it's a word that signals that he has bound himself. He has covenanted with this person or people. He has, he will never let 
you go. Such unobligated loyalty of the Lord towards people who fail to keep their promises. He says, I will keep mine. Really gets to his dependability. His faithful arms, if you will, are unswervingly dependable. And it says he keeps his steadfast loves to thousands. I have a footnote in my Bible that says to a thousand generations. That is a long time. I think what it's implying is that if you imagine someone likened to this, a tsunami wave, spiritually speaking, that's rolling through the planet right now, the waves of God's steadfast love keep rolling through. But they're not destroying objects and people in their wake. They're sweeping people towards Christ, his cross and empty tomb. He says in verse 7 that he forgives. He keeps steadfast love to thousands and he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. In other words, he forgives it all. And then we get to that verse 7. It seems like it goes against the grain of what we're reading. Does it cut against it? But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the... You know, when I first read that years ago, I thought, man, I wish we could have stopped at verse 6. I was kind of digging this. But then I get to that and I go, oh. It's a reminder, isn't it, that this merciful God that Israel is invited to worship is not a God who indulges sin. And it is not a God who has no standards. And so the unrepentant sinner has no safety in his presence. So friend on the stream and in the sanctuary, have you repented of your sin and turned to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin? Have you crossed over, if you will, enabled by his grace, emboldened by his love, called for by his word? I have sinned against you, Jesus. Forgive me. I turn now, and I pledge my life to you, my love to you. Forgive me. Give me a new heart that I might delight in you. If you haven't, this passage invites you. God's presence is inviting you. But there is sobriety here in the overwhelming emphasis of God's grace. There is no safety with the God of the Bible for an unrepentant sinner. But for the repentant sinner who puts his faith in Jesus, steadfast love. That's why David can say, surely goodness and mercy will follow me. 
Moses is not disappointed even though he didn't see God the way he thought he'd see him. He heard his name proclaimed. And so he quickly bows in verse 8, and this is my final point as we wrap up for home. He worships God, his response, having prepared to meet with God, having had God's glory through his name proclaimed revealed to him. He worships God now, beginning in verse 8 to the end of this section, by bowing his head toward the earth and worshiping. I think what Moses has simply experienced and heard overwhelms him. And yet he does the unexpected. The more I read Exodus, the more I like this guy. He prays for Israel. Verse 9, if now, Lord, I have found favor in your sight, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. Notice how he includes himself, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is his fifth intercession in this section of this chapter, that God would go with them, that God would forgive them, that God would take them as his own. He's made all these quests for before. So why does he say them again? Well, here's what I believe. He has encountered God in his undeserved grace and his goodness. And out of this revelation, he prays again. And what springs from him, having had God's goodness and grace revealed to him, are these God-centered desires. In other words, he has reason for his hope, and it now becomes the fuel for his intercession having been given every assurance that this covenant shattered by Israel's rebellion can now be renewed because of the revelation of God's grace so given. In other words, God didn't reveal himself to Moses without a purpose. His revelation never stands alone. It's always accompanied and interpreted by his actions and his words. Just as God expounded the significance of his name, Yahweh, in this section, he will later expound the significance of this revelation in one still to come. Jesus. Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ, centuries later would not simply be an announcement of God's character, but a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And the glory that Moses asked, Dave pointed out last week, it was, so, it was insightful to me, it helped me, that the glory that Moses asked to see, we now see today in the face of Christ. He's answering that prayer and he's here. This is what John has written in his gospel. Glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. Not blazing fire. The gospel writers were clear there was nothing about the appearance of Christ that drew people to him. Nothing. He didn't look. He didn't wear fashionable skinny jeans. He didn't rock the supercut. He didn't have all the things that fill my feet and yours of people who attract followers and influence people. 
today. He had nothing to attract us to him except his words and his deeds. And oh, people were attracted. Repentant sinners were attracted to him, weren't they? Because they beheld in him the glory of the goodness of the living God. Full of grace and truth, as John declares in his fourth gospel. And in Jesus, friend, you and I encounter God's steadfast love. His gracious, loyal, merciful, relentless love that he shows to those whom he calls his own. Christian, if you have put your faith in Christ, if you have repented of your sins, and like me, you are, you are endeavoring, albeit imperfectly, to remain loyal to him, he's got you. He's got you. You cannot escape his notice. You are never out of his sight or out of his heart. Because in Jesus, we encounter God's faithfulness. In Jesus, we encounter his utter reliability. So how grieved he must have been when we introduced that song a couple years ago. And I was doubting God's goodness and faithfulness to me. Not because my sins weren't forgiven, I believe that, but because circumstantially, I was in a difficult space. And I began to lose hope in him. And I'm not alone in that. I need only flick on TikTok, and I don't have TikTok. I see a lot of Christians who seem pretty hopeless right now. It's as if, it's as if they haven't heard the name, the name of Jesus, and haven't believed that in his name, God's faithfulness and goodness and mercy revealed through his life and his death on Calvary, his death for my sins, his, his taking upon himself my guilt, his, the shame he suffered for my unrighteousness, the wrath he atoned for, the judgment I deserved he took so that in dying in my place and being raised again, I could say on Easter with full-throated faith, he's got me. Do you believe that? Can you say with David that if this is your last day on earth, it will be his goodness and mercy that will chase you into heaven because his promise is we will dwell with him forever. If you believe that, friend, it's because you have beheld the glory of God in Christ. And yet, like me, don't you want to know him more? Don't you want to delight in him more deeply? Don't you want to, this Easter season, have an awakening of the light? Where do we get it? We get it through beholding Christ in his word, through the work of the Spirit, 
through the ministry of song and word, through the encouragement of friends and the ministry of the local church, but we keep our focus on him, on him. I'll close with this. I've shared this story before, but 1981, I remember it like it was 2023. The meeting was ending. I was not a Christian. And everything I was living for was right there before me. And the pastor, Phil, and I think his partner in crime, Perry, youth pastors of a large church, had just walked me through my yearbook and were reading all the things that high school youth were living for and setting their hopes on and wanted to be remembered for. And this was their legacy. And, you know, I was rocking that 70s do, long hair, uncut, and preppy clothes. And I don't remember what the 70s were like, but that's kind of how we did it. And he, he just simply said, you can have all that. You can have all that. You will never be fully satisfied. You will chase that. And you will never find your deepest delight met. And worst of all, when you die, you will die unforgiven and judged by the one who came to save you. And it was so clear to me that I had a decision to make that I could either spend my days delighting in Jesus through a repentant faith in him and his work on the cross and his indwelling presence enabling me to do that, or I could continue pursuing the vapid dreams of my yearbook. And in his mercy, he followed me home last night. I wasn't a Christian. And he led me to receive him And it stuck. Why did it stick? Why am I here? Why are you here? Because if the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, showing steadfast love to a thousand generations, if that's his heart for you and I, then he has committed himself to continue to show us his goodness in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why we gather. That's what we celebrate this holy season of the year. That's where the Lord has churches that remain faithful to his word and faithful to the gospel, aiming their efforts to behold the goodness of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And if you want that today, the decision is yours. Choose through turning from your sin and your self-ignoring God ways and self-centered serving ways, turn to him and he will welcome you. And if like me, you want to deepen your delight in him, let's pray. Lord, your word says it's so much better than any preacher, certainly this speaker can 
can espouse. But this is a holy moment, and so I pray as we conclude, Lord, that you would get a hold of each of our attentions and fuel our faith in the revelation of the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, the graciousness of God, the loyalty of God towards me, an undeserving sinner, through Christ and my relationship with him. May, as we sing this song, may we take a hold by faith him. And Lord, as we do, deepen our wonder, deepen our delight, deepen our worship of Jesus. For you've revealed the significance of your name, but even more importantly, you have revealed to us the significance of salvation through relationship with your son. Receive our worship now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.